welcome to Opening Doors, a musical theatre podcast where we engage with creators and enthusiasts. I'm Meredith Shedden, and today we're joined uh, by Richard Azunian, uh, director, actor, journalist, educator, theatre enthusiast, coffee getter. Hi, Richard. Hi there, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm doing really well to be here. So, um, as I was preparing for this interview, I was looking at your bio, looking at your credits, and I came to the conclusion that you've done so much <laughs> that I want you to tell me some of your favorite highlights from your bio, as opposed to me being like, oh, Richard's done this, 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 and this, and, you know. Okay. Um, I think I'll start out, because this is also a great thing to tell anyone young starting out in the business. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite shows remains... Uh, the show that I credit with jump-starting my career. I was a graduate student at the University of British Columbia in the theater department, and I was in directing. And the tradition always was that your master's show was supposed to be something nice and tiny and manageable and naturalistic. Do the glass menagerie. Do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Do that. And I didn't really like those plays. I loved Shakespeare. And the other thing that happened in the department at that time is that in the big theater upstairs where they did a subscription season and the faculty directed, the chairman of the department was doing a production of the Three Sisters using nothing but equity actors. So all the students were pretty pissed off at that point. And I thought, let me do something big that'll make me happy and use all the students. And I decided to do Shakespeare. And one of my favorites was Much Ado About Nothing. I'd never directed it, but I loved it. And I thought, where do I want to put it to make sense? And I thought, I'm going to put it in the 1930s. Yeah, it'll be like Noel Coward. It'll be on the French Riviera. And then I thought, gee, it'd be nice to have some songs in it. And I have to confess the year, and you're going to do the math later, but <laughs> it's 1971. And I was I had recently from New York, and I would see all the shows in New York, and I came back just having seen Company and Follies. And I loved Sondheim, and I loved all these songs. And I... What actually triggered the whole thing is in Shakespeare's original, there's a scene where they're trying to, I guess, gull Benedict and convince him that Beatrice loves him. And they bring out an anonymous singer named Balthazar to do a, a song called Sigh No More. And I thought, well, that's kind of lame. Uh, and I thought, gee, we should do something where we bring a bunch of women out and in period doing something 30s-ish or, you know, and I thought, oh, we could do You Could Drive a Person Crazy from Company. Oh. And instead of uh, Bobby, Baby, Bobby, Bobby, it was Benny, Baby, Benny, Bobby, <laughs> they were singing to. But it was the moment when the show went, oh, and the audience went, we get this. We love it. And it did do very well. It got great reviews. But the reason it helped me so much is Paxton Whitehead, revered British actor who was at that point running the Vancouver Playhouse, came to see it which was unheard of. He doesn't come to see graduate student shows, but it turned out he had just lost the director of his next main stage show, which was a comedy. And he heard this was funny, so he came to see it, introduced himself to me backstage. At this point, I am 21. I have shoulder length hair, I have a beard, <laughs> I have granny glasses, and Paxton is an elegant British gentleman. And he asked me if I would like to direct an Alan Acorn comedy at the Playhouse. I said, well, I'm in the middle of my graduate program right now. He said, you want to get a degree in directing or be a director? Yep. And I started rehearsals <laughs> in two weeks. And then I would, so that has a great 
favorite point in my mind. Also, it, it had people in the cast who were all at UBC with me, like Brent Carver, Lauren Kennedy, Goldie Semple, Mickey Cavendish. It was an amazing group of people. So that is dear in my mind, and I love that one tremendously. Um, I want to jump ahead a lot of years. What happened then is I started on a cycle of, of running regional theaters across Canada. I ran theaters in Quebec, in Halifax, in Manitoba, in BC. I uh, even ran Canadian stage for one awful year. If I write a biography, it'll be called The Year of Living Dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> and I ran YPT for a year. But I wound up in 1980 to 1984 at the Manitoba Theater Center. Very good period of my life and of the theater. And it was the theater's 25th anniversary and they wanted something big. So I decided I would do Nicholas Nickleby, which at that point was <laughs> a big thing in the Royal Shakespeare Company. Except the Royal Shakespeare Company wouldn't give us the rights to their version of it. So I did my own version of it. <laughs> and ours only ran three hours, theirs ran nine, I think. But it was gigantic. And again, a trademark of one of my, of my career has been, I always take what I've seen recently and try to take the ideas and run with them. I had just been to see Michael Bennett's Dream Girls in New York. And this, the big feature of it, which everyone talks about to this day, where there were giant metal towers run on computer that roamed the set and made the scenery and had lights in them. And I decided that's what we do with Nicholas Nickleby. And so, Bless their hearts, the crew and the designers at the Manitoba Theatre Centre did what Michael Bennett and his Broadway crew did, and we had computerized towers moving everything around. It was pretty neat. Yeah. I loved that dearly, dearly, dearly. That was one of my favorite shows. And after that, I mean, I did work on Phantom of the Opera for a year. Yeah. And it was, ne I have to confess now, it was never one of my favorite shows. But I got offered a chance to be Hal Prince's assistant when he was mounting it, and I worshipped Hal Prince. So I said, let me do it. And I did get to spend eight weeks with Hal Prince, and it was also in the early years of Garth Drabinsky. So I have vintage Garth Drabinsky stories, which I love to tell to this day. And Andrew Lloyd Webber came around, and it was like, you know, I was moving with that circle, and it was kind of fun. Well, Cameron McIntosh would come by to visit. I had to take him on a tour of the theater, you know. I imagine there's lots of really good stories between those people. I, I did a project a few weeks ago with Tracy Fly, who worked with Weber all the time, and she just had, like, hilarious stories from oh, doing those projects. Weber was not... They wanted to try out the acoustics in the theater, and, and Sarah Brighton, who was married at the time, wanted to do a concert, and he was so unhappy with the way it was being mic'd that he did the old thing you've seen in 1940s movies, Andrew Lloyd Webber rushed down to the orchestra pit and started grabbing the music away from the musicians so they couldn't play anymore. Garth fixed the acoustics and everything went well. But I will tell one story because it's my favorite. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's not a secret and it's, well, God, now it's, what, almost 30 years ago. The tech didn't work. Phantom is a tough show to do, but it's even tougher to open a new theater with it. And the scenery kept malfunctioning. And finally, we had never gotten through two and a half weeks of previews smoothly. So Hal Prince said, we're opening next Thursday. I want a full, massive overtime day on Sunday, even though it's the day off to try to fix this. So the cast, the orchestra, the crew, I had to see everybody came in on double, triple overtime on a Sunday. It was costing the earth. And we were going to try to make this work. And coincidentally, uh, 
just the day before, the Globe and Mail had ran a big article that there was a $25 million advance on Phantom, which at that point was the largest advance on any show in the history of the English language theater in the world. Uh, so we had that in mind, and then we went in and we started working on the show, and we got to the same point where the boat is going down to the lair, and it went crazy, and it started to nearly run into the orchestra pit with Cole Wilkinson on it, and they had to kill the power and stop it. And how Prince just stood up and he went, okay, stop, stop. Everybody in their dressing rooms, just leave me alone. And I started to follow. He said, not you, Richard. And I came back and I sat down and I thought, what's he going to do? And Hal always would put his glasses on the top of his head and then rub his brows, you know, when he was in distress. And he said to me, give me a piece of paper and a pencil. And I thought, he's going to write a letter of resignation. Because what he had said to me is, if he, if he stayed till opening night, he got X percentage royalties. If he left before, he got much less. And he said to me, what was the advance on this show again? And I said, $25 million, Hal. And he did a little long division box. <laughs> you yeah. know, no, and he did, did 20, $25 million in, in the percentage and calculated it out. Got to the bottom, very carefully doing all the things. Looked at the figure sighed, turned to me and said, bring everybody back in. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's the ultimate practical theater story. And I have to be honest with you, it didn't work perfectly until opening night, but it did work perfectly opening night. Uh, and it ran 10 years. So it was a pretty amazing experience. All wow. all. So those are some of the highlights, I would say. So, and you have experience with other shows that have lots of like technical aspects. So for instance, I'm going to introduce why we know each other. Right. Um, so I met Richard um, doing uh, Carrie the Musical at right. House. Um, and you had told, I think you had said something about how you really like to do shows that had flopped in the past and right. then figure out what that was and how to change it. Right. So do you want to speak a bit more about that? Oh, absolutely. Every now and then I see, I see a show that I think this, there's something great in here. What happened? My favorite before Carrie was Anyone Can Whistle by Sondheim. I was a 15-year-old in New York when it was in previews. And I just wandered in. I thought, oh, yeah, Angela Lansbury, Lee Remick, $3 for a balcony seat. I'm in there. And I loved it. I mean, it was the show that let me realize what musical theater could do. I mean, up till then, I had seen Hello, Dolly, My Fair Lady, Gypsy, all great shows, but conventional. This was out of the box. And... It, it did a lot of the things theatrically that Cabaret would do like two and a half years later, but it did them first, you know, about breaking the fourth wall and doing political commentary. And that. I loved it. I went back to it three times and it only ran a week. And as soon as the recording came out, I bought it. I memorized it. I always said, one day I'll do this. Well, of course, nobody wants to do it. It's usually done in concert yeah, when it is done. And finally, in 2008, our caddy Spivak, who runs Talk is Free Theater in Barry, where I do a lot of shows, had said to me, uh, his theater was closed for a year to be renovated. And he said, Uz, we have a Russian accent. Uz, we have to do concerts for this year. What do you want to do? And I said, anyone can whistle. And I got together the dream cast. I had Kate Hennig, Adam Brazier, Blythe Wilson, Steve Ross, Juan Kioran. Oh, I mean, amazing people right down the line. Uh, I have uh, one of the girls in my chorus uh, later went on to become Ali X. 
you know, the great offbeat pop star. Uh, she was in Toronto at the time working. So we got that up and we got to the heart of the show, which I always felt was the relationship between uh, the romantic leads. And I'll never forget, there was a Saturday night, I just called in the musical director, Adam and Blythe, and I did all of their scenes together. And at the end of it, we all looked at each other and said, how could this fail? Because it was so good. That was like a rock. That was brilliant. There was a lot of other stuff that didn't work, but when we did it in concert, it was a triumph. And we later brought it back to Toronto for a night as a benefit. I was working for the star at this point, so I could not direct anything professionally in Toronto yeah. or for theaters I reviewed outside of Toronto, like Shaw or Stratford. But they, they agreed to let this come in for one night as a benefit performance and no press. So we, we did bring it down. So I loved Anyone Can Whistle. I did another show in Barry called Darling of the Day, a Julie Stein flop musical that we always said, gee, what's wrong with this was Vincent Price played the lead. <laughs> we need someone charming who can sing. And we got Tom Allison and suddenly it worked. So, you know, I was on the, I want, I just this past year did Candide, which mm -hmm. everyone knows is a great work, but it's never really succeeded. And I did that again. So Carrie fell in the middle of that. Part of it, the reason is there's two kinds of shows I don't want to do. I don't want to do shows that I feel, you know, you don't really need a director for, you need a stager, you know? Mm. I mean, if you're going to do crazy for you, you need someone who can do great staging and great choreography, but you don't really need a vision or an insight or anything like that. Yeah, it's not a lot of emotional depth no, going no. on. But the other kind of show I don't want to do is ones where I saw a production that nailed it. Like, I love Stephen Sondheim. But there's two shows I have no desire to do, which are Sweeney Todd and Sunday in the Park with George, because I've seen brilliant productions of both of them. I have nothing new to say. I still want to do Into the Woods, because I've never seen one I really liked. Yeah, but people are very, people have a lot of opinions about Into the Woods, and I think that that could be changed. Oh yeah, I think there's, I have, I'm just flinging this out there. If anyone steals it, I'll kill you. But it's, <laughs> I want to take... I mean, the thing that everyone loves is everybody looks like fairy tale characters, but they're acting like modern people. I want to shove the subtext in the front. I want to set it contemporary. Yeah. And I'm, in fact, I want to set it in New York City in the fall of 2001. Ooh. And when the giant comes in and starts trampling the city, it's the Twin Towers falling down. And that's how I see it happen. And that's copyrighted. That's got, well, <laughs> I'll just come after you in the middle of the night and hit you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But So that's an example of one that's lurking around. Another thing that's on my bucket list, which has never succeeded, everybody does the Three Penny Opera by Brecht and Bile, but nobody except a few crazy German opera houses does the rise and fall of the city of Mahagoni, mm -hmm. which is even better. It's a full-length opera. What everybody will know about it is the Doors great song, mm -hmm. the Alabama song, Show mm -hmm. Me the yes, Way to the Next yeah. Whiskey Bar. That's from Mahagoni. Yes. In fact, with those English lyrics. Brecht wrote those English lyrics as well. It's a terrific show. Uh, I keep saying to people, let's do it. And then they say, and how big is it? Because the Kirk Vile estate, by the way, are very strict. You know, some things you can joke around with a little, you know. I mean, Carrie didn't care how many people we used or how big the orchestra was as long as we didn't really change it much. You know, a lot of shows are like that. Just don't change it. Do it. The Kurt Vile estate is, if you do Mahagoni and you want to do the full version, you do it with the full orchestration, which is an opera house orchestration. And you do it with the opera voices. 
So there aren't a lot of places that could do it. But anyway, that's the kind of thing. I'm attracted to those beautiful shows that failed and didn't deserve to. And maybe we could redeem them. Yeah, but, and I remember we talked about that um, when we met for coffee because you had wanted, you met with everyone in our cast. Right for coffee before we started the rehearsal process. Do you always do that? Is there a reason why you I started to do that? I think what's really important is that, as the old phrase has it, we all have to be singing from the same hymn book. And rather than just a first day of rehearsal where the director does his concept talk and everybody is nervous and checking everybody else in the cast out <laughs> and wondering what's going on and what's going to happen and blah, 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 and they don't really listen, I want it because also I feel to everybody in the company, what you're doing has a different point. Like you want something different out of a show than someone else might. Or if you're playing this kind of a role, you need to know something more than someone else did. Obviously, the girl playing Carrie had had more on the table or different stuff on the table than the girl playing her mother. So we have to talk. I believe it's really important that you share the ideas with everybody up front and I'm, I don't hesitate saying I've got three, I've got a three-part plan usually when I do a show. I have a very, very strong concept that I share with the company. I also usually have a very strong physical production concept that I work out with the designers. But then, in rehearsal, I encourage the actors to take that and run with it. You know, I mean, believe me, nobody, nobody goes and stands in the wrong place if it's going to screw everything up. But I let them try it. I let everybody try something. Take a chance. Do something. Go for it. I've told you what I'd like. Here's the sandbox we're playing in. Now go play. And it, I find it generally works. Uh, you know, actors like to be told, even like, in fact, it's very funny that the higher up the food chain they are, the more they want a clear message of what to do. That's what your role in this show is. That's what I need to see out of you. Don't tell them how to do it. Let them figure that out. But tell them what you need. They love that. They love to, you know, have have a mission, not just say the words and sing the notes. Yeah. So that's what the coffee dates are for. That's what they're for. And to get to know each other. Yeah. yeah. And then you go and you have more coffee dates later. And later. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, you know, uh, I think it, you know, the old school used to be, let's all go out after rehearsal and drink. Yeah. I hate that. Because first of all, I don't think much good is ever accomplished when, you know, somebody in the cast has had three wines or four beers, you know, yes. they say, you know what I don't like or this and that. And I, no. And also, I don't believe in blurring the lines that much. You know, I mean, I'm the director. These are the cast members. Uh, and there's a special relationship that has to exist. You know, we should have a simpatico, we should be able to talk to each other. Everybody in every cast knows they can come up to me at any point and say, I'm having a problem with this, mm. or I'm having a problem with that person, or I'm having a problem with that costume, or something like that. But I don't think, you know, we should be great buddies out till three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, um, you know, dynamic that you have to... Oh yeah, it's like, you know, and I also don't think you have to come in and be distant and, you know, no. directors who act like they're God don't deserve that either. And I remember on our coffee date, we talked about um, 
merrily roll along yes. a lot. Okay, oh, that's I forgot. my favorite. Well, that's and another as one. As we were talking about flops. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I should have mentioned that because that is one of my favorites. Oh, you right know I was going to bring that Thank up. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me. Uh, that is like the quintessential Sondheim flop that, that, that yeah. everybody tries to redeem. And Michael Rubinoff at Sheridan College came to me at one point and said, Okay, if I let you do any show in the world here, what do you want? And I said, merrily we roll along. Yeah. And he went, oh, that would be good. I said, but I have one requirement. He said, what is it? I said, it has to be at the end of the season. And he said, why? I said, because it's the graduating class that do it. Yeah. And because so much of the show is framed with that. I also have to confess, I went back to the original version and put back in the Hills of Tomorrow. And if Stephen Sondheim happens to listen to this... <laughs> You know, but I did, and you know, well, Lonnie said, Price was our first guest on this show. Okay. So, and, and, and the show is called Opening, Opening Doors. Doors. Of yes. course. <laughs> so you know how much we all love it. Uh, but we did go back and I did The Hills of Tomorrow. But I worked, again, what's interesting, and, and you may have done this too, is when you listen to an original cast recording and you haven't seen the show, you imagine what happens. Yeah. Okay. And, I okay, go home right as soon as this is over and put on the original cast recording of Merrily We Roll Along and go to the finale where they sing the Hills of Tomorrow. And then there's this incredible musical pattern that goes bum 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 pause. Bum 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 pause. And then this long resonant melancholy chord that resolves. And I thought, what's going on then? You know, it's like Franklin Shepherd's come back to speak, and what, what's happening? And I thought, well, the show doesn't resolve what happens to Charlie and Mary and Franklin, the three of them. Yeah. I said, what if we resolve it? And so I have Charlie and Mary, who aren't speaking either at this point, come from opposite sides of the stage to this commencement speech to hear it. And after they, the kids have all finished singing Hills of Tomorrow, the three of them all see each other and they start to come downstage towards each other as the music starts. And there's also the, 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 the hook in the show, here's to us who's like us, damn few, which they all keep repeating. Yeah. I've worked out a thing, this won't translate on a podcast, but uh, I'm, here's to us, uh, they would do a thumbs at each other. Yeah. Who's like us, they would point at each other, and damn few, they'd raise a hand up. And it fits with three beats. And they looked at each other again. Franklin went, bum, 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 bum. Charlie went, bum, 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 second gesture. Then Mary came in and they did the third gesture together and touched their hands. Aww. So it had an ending. Some people might deride that as overly sentimental, but it gave the show a coda. It's a sentimental show. Honestly. It is. It's so emotional. The other thing, and this is what, this is great, I think, if you're working with students. It's got a big chorus and there's big party scenes. And we thought we have to do, again, I didn't want people who were in the chorus to feel like they were wasting their time. So with my assistant, I did a list of everybody who would have probably been at those two big parties, the, the theater one in act two and the movie one, the theater one from the fifties in act two and the movie one from the seventies in act one. And I did, everybody was based on a real person. And when they showed up on the first day of rehearsal, they got handed a file printed up with the Wikipedia biography, the photo, and other details about the person their character was based on. So it wasn't just, you know, there's the newscaster in the prologue who's the reporter. Yeah. And I said, no, 
You're Jessica Savage, who was the star of NBC TV until she developed a cocaine habit and then finally drowned driving her car one day. Okay, that's where you wind up. That's where you come from. Use that. <laughs> and, you know, what are the producers who stands up and says, oh, I love him. He's back at the studio. I said, you're Bob Evans. You, you know, everybody had a characterization. Everybody, but it was a real one. And in many cases, they were made up to look like them. So everybody had something. It was, it was an excellent idea, I thought. And it did work really well. Everybody has to feel they really belong into a show. You know, especially, ironically, if you're a student. Sometimes if you're getting paid, well, you're getting paid. That's it. Uh, but, oh, I don't believe that should be the answer. But especially if you are dealing with students, everybody's got to know just where they fit in the puzzle. Yeah, and I think... That's, yeah, that's such a great, um, it's great to do with like every show, but especially when you're doing uh, shows within like educational environments and you've done that several times, yeah. right? And, uh, all through my career, I, I, it's very funny. As soon as I graduated from UBC, they brought me back to work with the students. Yeah. And then I actually, God, they were crazy. When I was 24 years old, I was made head of the theater program at Simon Fraser University for two years. And I had all the students under me and we did amazing stuff. And I, when I was in Winnipeg, I would direct at the University of Winnipeg. And when I was at Neptune Theater, I would direct at Dalhousie or teach at Dalhousie. You know, so you, I've always kind of kept that thread going because I think it's, it's important. You know, uh, it's also, it's great to see what the next generation is doing, you know, and work with them. And do you find it um, like more difficult to work in like education or in in the professional world? Ah, that's a really good question. I think it's a little of both. Uh, the good part is you know that you know it's not going to usually wind up getting reviewed in the newspapers or be responsible for the financial health of the theater. You know, that's right. if you're doing the big musical of the year at a regional theater. You better make it a hit, otherwise they're in trouble, yeah. you know, and that's hanging over you. Uh, on the other hand, there are things like, well, even like, it depends whether you're working. For example, if you're working at Sheridan, the students there have a full day of classes, and then they come to you at three in the afternoon, and you work afternoon and evening? Wow. I mean, they're devoted, they work hard, but... You have to be on their schedule and work with them and be aware they've also had classes from nine in the morning till three. At Hard House, you know, you have to work with everybody's schedule and mm -hmm. people are coming in working around jobs and classes and term papers. And so the juggling is a factor. Uh, also, even though, you know, both Hard House and Sheridan rose to the occasion and gave me really good technical productions for the shows I did, uh, it's harder, you know. And, and often you had, remember, we had students running all of those in Carrie. We had the periatroids. Yeah. They were the things that were mirror on one side, black on another, and white on the third. And they turned around. And if they got turned the wrong way, it sounded like cars hitting each other on the gardener. Yes, it did. And you couldn't exit and get in it. But you had to keep methodically doing it and getting it right and doing all that stuff. Uh, the good part is the people are devoted and they're giving you the best they can, and they're often discovering what it's like to play a leading role in a situation like that for the first time. So that's, you know, it has good and bad. Uh, and I think, oh, for me at least, ultimately the good outweighs the bad, which is why I keep doing it. So. Yeah. And um, 
Oh, I have something in my notes that was going to transition <laughs> really well. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that... Uh, oh, did you have something? Well, I just wanted to like uh, close the circle a little on, on, on Merrily. Like, I, I, because I, I, I came to understand it later, and I still don't... I, I don't really buy... Like, I remember watching the documentary on it, I think Hal Prince says, you know, we made a mistake in going, you know, um, back in time and, and having, you know, children play these roles. And I don't actually buy it. I think that's that's not that hard to deal with. No. I just think I with, with Lonnie, they just didn't work on it long enough. Like, that's probably what happened. Is it, just, it just somehow was flat when it opened. But it, I don't think it was because the audience couldn't handle it. I mean... But I will never know for 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 real. You know, I guess but. it's it's interesting. I mean, the question has been raised about Merrily to go back to Merrily. We roll along about you know they had really young people playing the parts, and the way the show goes, it goes backwards, right? Mm-hmm. You meet the people when they are like twenty years after they got out of high school, and they're successful but miserable, and then you go back to when they were graduating from high school, and their future was ahead of them. So. The original production had very, very young people, and some people thought that's why it failed. There have been later productions that have older people. I find them problematic because I find it really hard to accept 35 to 40 year old people doing their 16 year old acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, uh, you know, you know how people are when they think they're being young. Uh, I think the problem was, and if you see that great documentary, the best worst thing that ever happened, seen that three times. you saw what it looked like. <laughs> the major problem was Hal Prince, who normally is a genius, went down the wrong thing visually. It looked the set was high school lockers, and the costumes where everybody wore T-shirts with the the, the mm. role they were playing, like agent, leading lady, mistress on the T-shirts. First of all, unless you were in the first four rows, you couldn't read them. And it just looked unattractive, and it didn't give you a sense of period or time. Makes Whereas, you do a lot of work as an audience member. That's it. And it's a confusing show to begin with. Yeah. When we did it at Sheridan, Nick Blade, brilliant designer, came up with a set that was a double turntable on top of each other, like there were two platforms turned, and then there were two gigantic staircases on air casters that 12 people could stand on and get moved with. And there were times in the transitions when all three of these things moved together. These giant staircases with 12 people on them would get pushed by six other people and pass each other while the turntables were going around. And, and during opening doors, the turntables never stopped and people kept running around. And, but Ming Wong, who did the costumes, another brilliant designer, we did period. You, you know, it was like, this is what 1978 looked like or 1981. This is what 60s looked like. This is what 50s looked like. And we tried to capture the spirit and the feel of it so you knew where you were. People in this, in the original production, all they saw was a bunch of lockers and t-shirts. There was no idea where they were, who they were, the style. Uh, It's still a problem show and it always will be. But those of us who love it, you know, how can you not love a show that gives you two of the best ballads ever written, good thing going and not a day goes by? Yeah. And I guess people often, somebody just actually asked me this week, if you could listen to one piece of music, you know, like, okay, you're going to die in five minutes, Richard. What do you want? There's a wonderful New York cabaret singer named Nancy Lamott. Mm. And she did a medley. She joined together, good thing going and not a day goes by with an incredible cello solo underneath it. 
I think that's the single most beautiful piece of music that exists, to hear those two things together. I heard that a lot on Jonathan Schwartz show before yes. he became persona non grata, but uh, um, he was a huge fan of hers. I have all her CDs. Uh, so you her. you heard it in the She's background when you were younger. You can get that on Spotify too. Yeah. I mean, I think it was also, on the other hand, you know, with uh, some, you know, sometimes disasters are really helpful, right? Because uh, it really did move Sondheim into a new it direction. Did. It broke so, him up with Prince. Yeah. They had, they had come off doing some of the greatest shows in the history of musical theater. Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd. Hmm. All in a decade. All five of those shows in nine years. Wow. It's kind of like we have to explode the Petri dish now so the experiment can continue differently. And it drove Sondheim to James Lapine, mm -hmm. out of which came, you know, Sunday in the Park with George and Into the Woods and Passion and other interesting things, too. So it's things happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. I know something that would be good to wrap up on, which is good. Uh, the th you know, I love my themes of past and present and all of that. And... Something I'm working on this October, which I'm really looking forward to. I have gone back and forth to the Stratford Festival several times in my life. I was John Neville's associate director in the late 80s for four years and directed there. And then I came back in 1999 and did my musical of Dracula there, starring Warren Kioran. And I'm back now uh, working on a lot of musicals in concert and advising and things. But Anthony Tremolino thought, we can never get Eric McCormick back here to do a whole show because he's too busy on television. Eric was in the company for seven years when he was young. And I directed the last show he was in at Stratford before he left, which was A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1989. And he was Demetrius. Also in the cast was a young actor named Anthony Cimolino, mm. who was playing Francis Flute, the bellows mender. And we all went our separate ways after that. But Anthony said, let's bring it back together. But Eric can only get out of his will and grace and traveler's schedules five yeah. days. And at first I said, oh, let's do X or Y. And I mentioned some other new shows. And he said, Richard, not in five days. I've got to do something I did once before, at least. And 10 years ago, he did the Fantastics for Reprise Productions in L.A. with Jason Alexander directing them. So we're doing the Fantastics this October. Uh, it's going to be October 30th at the Avon Theater, one night only. Uh, it's kind of fantastic. Uh, he, he's, no pun intended, he will, he will be El Gallo and uh, uh, Gabe Antidachi and Sarah Farb from the Stratford Company are doing Matt and Louisa. Some amazing people. What right more could you ask for? I mean, that's it, really. But it's kind of like, Eric thinks this is not just, oh, I'm coming back. It's a real experiment. You know, he, he keeps quoting El Gallo's speech to me about, you wonder how these things begin. And he was right out of Ryerson Theater School when he went to Stratford. Yeah. And then he left Stratford and went off and started to do television. He never stopped loving stage, but now he's like, it has been for, you know, well over almost 20 years, a huge TV star. But when he had five days off, let's get back and get on the stage again. And, and I feel that's wonderful too. So it's the first thing I'll be directing at Stratford since 1999. And, you know, one of the first big things I'll have directed since leaving the star after 15 years there. So, I mean, I did go off to Korea and did a $10 million production yeah. in Napoleon, but that's another podcast. <laughs> uh, but 
I kind of like the idea of all of that coming together. You well, know? and that you can you can make all the money you want on TV, but there's something about theater that brings you back. That oh, yeah. You'll you'll do a tiny little show yeah. just for the for the love of it, almost. Just to know? be there, and for Eric to go back to that company that meant so much to him and taught him so much. It's his way of giving back, you know. And uh, and everybody I know is very excited about it. You know, it's funny when we talk now. It's we're not. I guess that, you know, we're not that different than we were when we were talking about the business than we were back nearly 30 years ago. It's kind of astonishing. But anyway, that's the, the next thing on the agenda, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. I'm glad to be here. And yeah. we'll see you next time on Opening Doors.